You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Hey, good morning, City Church. Uh, my name is Zach Meredith. I'm the group director here. Can we thank the band again? That last song was awesome. That was really, really good. I enjoy that. It's like teeing me up. That's easy. It's an alley-oop for me. Uh, but I'm excited to be here this morning as we are continuing to uh, go through the book of 1 Corinthians together, verse by verse. And today we're going to be looking at uh, the middle section of chapter 10, if you want to flip with me there. Uh, we're going to be in 10, uh, 14 through 22. And last week we uh, heard from Jake Axon, our students director. Uh, he did a phenomenal job on the importance of relying on God, relying on his word, uh, relying on other brothers and sisters in Christ when facing temptation. And then also that uh, to God, it really does truly matter how we live our lives. So I was very encouraged. I hope you were too. If you weren't here, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to it. He did a phenomenal job walking uh, through that text. So let's dive into chapter 10. And just for some context, most of us probably know this, but the city of Corinth, uh, the the place where this church resided, where where this congregation lived, it was a massive, massive economic hub in the Roman Empire with a lot of influence, stretching far from its borders. And that's honestly probably one of the reasons that Paul went there, chose there as a destination in his ministry, in his missionary journey. We know that in Acts 18, uh, documents Paul going to the city of Corinth. He's there for a year and a half, spreading the name of Jesus, planting this church. And then he leaves, and he goes on uh, to continue to plant churches in the area. And he gets word, he hears reports that this church that he planted was not doing so well. Um, They were struggling with a lot of different things uh, in the church and in their life, and so he writes this letter to them, addressing all these different issues and telling them we must look at every aspect of life through the lens of the gospel. And so just like many churches today, many Christians today, the church in Corinth here is wrestling with a lot of theological and moral issues. And if we look at 1 Corinthians from 10,000 feet above, we, we see chapters 8, 9, and 10 were intended to be written as one body of text. Chapters 8, 9, and 10, and they all address the issue of Christian liberty. In the context of Corinth here, uh, their relation to eating food that is dedicated to idols and idol worship that is leaking into the church of Corinth. And so we're at the tail end of this big, of this big section. We're in chapter 10, verses 14 through 22, where Paul is going to dive into the Lord's Supper and talk about how the Lord's Supper helps us combat pagan sacrifices to idols and idol worship and sin. And as we dive in, I think that this text poses, Paul give, poses three questions to us to think about. And then with those three questions, he gives us three answers. And so I'm going to read those real quick, but they'll be on the screen later as we work through those. The first question that he asks is, what do we do in the face of sin and idolatry? And he says to run. The second question, he says, what does the Lord's Supper mean for the Christian? Well, the Lord's Supper is communion with Jesus, right, with other believers. It's our source of joy, and we partake in the Lord's Supper together as a body of believers with the purpose being to share in the life of Christ and fellowship with him. And then the third question he poses at the very end, and it's going to sound weird, but you'll understand when we get there. He asks, who are you sitting with on a daily basis? Who are you sitting with on a daily basis? And the answer is we must make a daily decision to sit at the table of the Lord. So let's dive in. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 14 through 22. It'll be on the screen as well. And the section is titled, Warning Against Idolatry. 
It says, so then, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I'm speaking as to sensible people, so judge for yourselves what I'm saying. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? And the bread that we break, is it not a sharing of the body of Christ? Because there's one bread. We who are many are one body, since all of us share the one bread. It says, consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate at the altar? So what am I saying then? That food sacrifice to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? He said, no. But I do say that what they sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I don't want you to be participants with demons. He says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot share at the Lord's table and the table of demons. So who are we provoking the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Let's pray together and we'll dive in. Dear God, we thank you for this time to uh, dive into your word. We pray that your word would pierce our hearts, that you would open our eyes and, and our ears and our hearts to what you would have for us today. I pray that we would leave this place different people as we go out and live our lives in Tallahassee. Um, please be with us in this room and as we gather together to bring glory to you. In your name I pray. Amen. So jumping right into verse 14. We see that first question that I posed earlier answered, right? What do we do in the face of sin and idolatry? That first question. What do we do in the face of sin and idolatry? And right from the jump, Paul answers that for us. Verse 14. He says, so then, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. Right? It's this direct instruction. Flee. Run. Go. And I think it's important that we look at the first words here. So then. Those words, so then, they point us back to something before it, right? So we look back to last week, and we see a clear reference to the Israelites, and Jake talked a lot about this in the Old Testament, and Paul uses them as an example of the severe judgment that was inflicted on them, rightfully so, because of their continuous idol worship. And so he's telling us, he's telling the original audience, he's going, so, when he says, so then, he's like, hey, look back at what happened to your ancestors and the judgment that they had from God because of their idolatrous sin. And then he says, so then, because of that, he says, my dear friends, I love this, my dear friends, right? There's affection here, there's caring. This command is coming from a place of love, right? He says, my dear friends, I'm saying run, flee from idolatry. Don't fall into the same sin that the Israelites did. Sometimes they ran towards idolatry, if you read the Old Testament and what they did. This is one of the ways that Paul instructs us to avoid sin in our life. And we know, as a believer, right, as a Christian, we know the only remedy to our sin problem, to the sickness that we have in sin, the only solution to that is Jesus. We know this, right, because we, we, we believe Scripture. That his death on the cross in our place, his resurrection, that when we confess that Jesus is Lord over our life, then we believe that God raised him from the dead, that he is the son of God, and we submit to him. He takes away our sin, and we are made guiltless before a holy God. So we know that the gospel is our only source of freedom from sin that entangles us. But what Paul is saying here is like, hey, but it's also a good idea to keep sin at a distance in your life. It's also a good idea to flee from temptation when it arises. Running from it is one way that we can practically combat sin in our lives. I once coached football with a guy 
who after, uh, after practice, we'd all huddle up and then we'd you know, say our post-practice stuff and then we'd send them to the locker room and they'd go straight from the locker room home. And every day, without fail, he would yell as they're going to the locker room, he'd yell, flee from temptation. That's what he would say to them. Flee from temptation. As you go out into the world, as you go out into your neighborhood, he'd go, flee from temptation. I was like, oh, I wonder where he got that from. Boom, here it is, 1 Corinthians. We also see it in the Old Testament, right? A practical, practical example is Joseph fleeing from Potiphar's wife. You probably know the story. She's trying to seduce him. He knows it's wrong. It goes against God's commands. She stops him in the hallway, grabs his shirt. What does he do? Boom, right? 4-4 speed down the hallway. He literally fleed. He ran from temptation. And I think running from temptation includes two things. First, running from temptation avoids gray areas in life. Jake talked about this last week as well, right? Those things that we can push little by little by little that could lead to sin. Right? I only, I've only done it once. I only did it once. I'm not going to do it again. Right? Or, man, at least I'm not doing it as, as, as much or as bad as that person over there. And I'm just trying to, I'm just dabbling in it. I think one that I heard a lot as a youth director for a couple years is, you know, if, if justification for an action in Scripture starts with, well, technically, well, technically, the Scripture really, my rule of thumb, if we have to say, well, technically, I'm in the wrong and I shouldn't do it, right? So how do we avoid gray areas? Well, it's, it's kind of simple, but it's hard to do. We stick to the truth of Scripture, right, and to the wisdom of Scripture and not rely on our own wisdom. Secondly, fleeing from idols or fleeing from sin, temptation, looks like keeping a distance from those things in our life that excite evil passions and sinful desires, right? Maybe in in our case, in our culture, that could look like not watching a TV show or a movie that promotes sexual activity or not going to a place, a, a physical location, or hanging out with people that are going to encourage and entice you to sin, in the case of the Corinthians, it was, fling, it was fleeing. It was not going to pagan feasts where idol worship was primary. And I'm not saying, and Paul here is not saying that we should avoid non-believers, that we should avoid the world, that we should stick in our bubble. But what he is saying here, which I think is very wise, is that we should be very, very careful not to get dragged into sin because of overwhelming temptation. So right here, Paul is acknowledging idols, right? He's acknowledging temptation that comes with them, and he's instructing us in the original audience to flee, to run from them. So as we continue in verse 15, let's look together. Verse 15 says, I'm speaking as to sensible people. saying, judge for yourself what I'm saying, right? He's saying, hey, guys, as normal, sane people, listen to what I'm about to say, a.k.a. I'm about to throw some heat. So listen. Verse 16, the cup of the blessing that we bless, is it not the sharing of the blood of Christ? And the bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread, and we who are many are one body. Why? Since we all of us share in the one bread. So here in verse 16, it's awesome. Paul is laying out this argument that should empower his audience, me, you, the people of Corinth, to flee from idolatry. Basically saying, hey, this is why you flee, right here. And it's an argument that's centered around the nature of the Lord's Supper. Which brings us to our second question. What does the Lord's Supper mean for the Christian? 
I mean, we partake in the Lord's Supper regularly here at City Church. Spoiler alert, we're doing it after the sermon. It's going to be awesome. Where we reflect on the sacrifice that Jesus gave for us, his life on the cross for our life in eternity. And we eat the bread and we drink the juice that represents Jesus' body and blood that was broken for us and this blood that was spilled for us. And this has been a tradition that has united Christians for centuries. The nature of the Lord's Supper, it's very, very powerful, but not in a way that the people in Corinth were using it. And that's the main issue that Paul has here, and that's what he's trying to correct in chapter 10. Pastor John Piper says this about 1 Corinthians 10. This is John Piper. He says, what 1 Corinthians 10, Piper says, it's about the way the Corinths, the Corinthians, they had overestimated the power of the Lord's Supper as sacramental food, and that's it. And then they had underestimated the purpose of the Lord's Supper as spiritual fellowship with Christ. They overestimated it as a sacramental food, and they had underestimated it as actual spiritual fellowship with Christ. And the church in Corinth here, they see the eating of the bread and the drinking of the juice as this like catch-all antidote that will cancel out all the bad effects that come from dabbling and pursuing an idolatry on a weekly basis, effectively saying, hey, I'm eating the bread, I'm drinking the juice at church, and now I got this God force field around me. I'm going to do whatever I want. Yeah, it's okay to participate in idol worship, to eat these foods dedicated to idols. It's fine. Now, well, why is it fine to you? I had the Lord's Supper last week on Sunday. I can do whatever I want. It's beach season now in Florida. It's beach season like 11 months out of the year, so we've got to you know, take advantage of it now. But what do we do before beach season, after Christmas, where we eat a lot and have sweet treats, and it's great? We see beach season coming. We say, man, I need to get on a diet, right? I need to start lifting weights. I'm going to be out in the boat. I'm going to be at the beach. I'm going to be by the pool. I need to look good in a bathing suit. And then we get to beach season, and what happens? We don't diet, right? And we don't lift weights, and we get to that point, and I laugh because it happens every time for me, uh, where I get there, and I'm like, oh, man, I have neglected eating good and working out, and I am about to be at the beach. And so for a male, our solution to this problem, it works every time, is to just crank out 20 push-ups real quick, right? Just crank out 20 push-ups, get a pump, and then you can like fake it for about 25 seconds, and you're back to where you were. And so how ridiculous is that, that we think that 20 push-ups is going to take away all the bad eating, not going to the gym, to get us where we want it to be. And that's kind of funny, in a funny way, that's effectively what the people in Corinth were doing, right? Viewing the Lord's Supper as this temporary solution that gives us freedom to partake in worldly pleasures. I mean, it's very classic. We've heard it from the stage here. It's like going to a restaurant and getting a quadruple cheeseburger with fries and then getting a Diet Coke, you know, that whole thing of, well, I'm trying to be healthy, so it's going to cancel out. That's ridiculous. 20 push-ups is not going to take away months of eating bad, just like a Diet Coke is not going to take away the double cheeseburger, just like the Lord's Supper is not going to take away days and days of days of idolatry and pursuing sin. And they failed to see that the true purpose of eating the bread and drinking the cup of the Lord's Supper was to share in the life of Christ and to be in fellowship with Him and Christians as one body and by underestimating the purpose of the Lord's Supper, they did not understand 
the power and the union that the Lord's Supper gives us, and it strengthens us when fighting sin and idolatry in our life. And just like Piper said in that quote I, I read a couple minutes ago, their overestimation of its power to give immunity and their underestimation of its purpose to nourish fellowship with Christ, that's what made them vulnerable to sin. Bless you. Let's continue looking at the passage. That was a great transition. Let's continue looking at the passage. And it's actually going to push them, side note, it's going to push them to be in communion with demons. We'll see how they get there. But before we get there, I want to clarify something in verse 16. We'll read it again on the screen. It says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not in the sharing and blood of Christ? And the bread that we break, is it not in the sharing of body of Christ? Well, I want to clarify something. What does it mean to share in the blood and body of Christ? And I think it's very important to know that it does not literally mean that we are eating Jesus's like flesh and or we're drinking his actual blood, but it's symbolism of what Jesus sacrificed in order for us to be made right or righteous or clean before a holy God, right? So by sharing in the body and sharing in the blood of Christ, we're receiving from Christ the nourishment and the hope and the joy that comes from sitting at the Lord's table. And so what Paul is saying here, and it's really great news for us in this room who are believers, is that when we do this, right, when we share in the blood and the body of Christ, we are sharing in the benefits that they bought us, including the unity that we have as a body of believers, the church, washing away our sins before God. So Paul wanted the Corinthians to know that the participants of the Lord's Supper, it represents a unified body of believers solely dependent and reliant on the death of Christ, right? 17 points, verse 17, points to the individual members, right, who make up one body of the church, right? For those of us in this room who are Christians, he's referring to you and me here. Verse 17, it says, we who are many are one body. Why? Because we share one bread. When we unify as one body, one church, and participate in the Lord's Supper together, we point together, collectively, to the fellowship and the unity that we found that was brought by Jesus' death and resurrection. First, or, uh, uh, Ephesians 2 talks about this. Ephesians 2, 11 through 14, then verse 19, literally uh, titled, The Unity in Christ. Ephesians 2, 11, it'll be on the screen as well. It says, so then, I know I said we point back, we're not going to do it this time. So then, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised, by those called the circumcised, which is done in flesh by human hands. And at one time you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, meaning not being a part of the family of God, and foreigners to the governance of promise, without hope. And without God in the world. It's a bad place to be. It says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been now brought near by the blood of Christ. How are we brought near to God? Is that something that we do to gain favor? Is it something that we can do to buy our way to God? No, it answers right here. We're brought near by the blood of Christ. He is our peace who made both groups one 
and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. And then skipping down to verse 19, so then you are no longer foreigners or strangers at such great news, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. The unity that binds us together as brothers and sisters in Christ is Christ. Right? We look to Ephesians 2 right there. Christ is the common thread that intertwines all Christians and brings us together. And the world will tell us that, no, that, that, that's not what unifies you. That's not what unifies people. The world will throw, no, what unifies you is tradition. That's what unifies you. A political agreements, that's what unifies you. The sports, race, wealth, blood. But those things don't unify the believers as one body. One family in God. It's Christ who does that. He is the hero. He's the cornerstone. He's the Lord of lords. He's the bread of life. He's the way, the truth, and the life. All of Scripture points to Christ as the great unifier. And as we finally look at verses 18 through 22, we see Paul share a truth that we see multiple times in Scripture, but unfortunately, I, and maybe you are in the same boat, fail to live like it is true, right, in our daily lives. Look at these verses with me. It's verse, uh, starting in verse 18. It says, Consider the people of Israel. There they are again, Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? He goes, okay, what am I saying then? That food sacrificed to idols is anything? That even an idol is anything? He's like, no. But I do say that what they sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I don't want you to be participants with demons. Once again, the poor Israelites, we see Paul use them as this effective punching bag here, right? looking at their example of what not to do, right? And what Paul is doing it for the people of Corinthians is he's saying, hey, you shouldn't go and participate in these pagan ritualistic meals because they involve literal intimate contact with demons. And he recognized it, and we know that demons are real. And they're powerful, not as powerful as our God, though. And he didn't want the Corinthians to discount this presence of being at the table of demons. And he's effectively saying, essentially saying, hey guys, spiritual warfare is real, and y'all are getting dangerously close to communing with demons. Like the old phrase, like, hey, you're playing with fire. That is applying here. Hey, guys, you're playing with fire, and you're going to get burned. That's why he's warning them, and he's pointing to the Israelites, right? The wilderness generation that we read about in the Old Testament, because they did the same thing. Not only overlooking or turning a blind eye to the demonic presence in idol worship, but literally building pagan idols in front of the gods in front of god's house and paul is going guys look what happened to them the lord punished them and he's pleading with the corinthians i imagine pulling out his hair while he's writing saying don't fall into the same sin don't do it which leads to the third question that paul asks he says who are you sitting with on a daily basis the third question who are you sitting with on a daily basis let's let's finish off this section verse 21 He's saying, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot share in the Lord's table and the table of demons. You can't do both. 
He's saying, who are we to provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Simply put, it's impossible to serve both idols of this world and the Lord. And we see this throughout scripture over and over again. Um, Jesus taught about it in his earthly ministry. And in the book of Matthew, he's talking about the idol of money, monetary gain. Matthew 6, 24. It says, no one can serve two masters, since either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. He's saying, you cannot serve both God and money. And while the context of this congregation, the situation in Corinth, the idolatry being referenced is eating food that was dedicated to idols, is to practicing in pagan ritualistic actions. But we know that idols come in all shapes and sizes and forms. And Jake talked about this once again last week. Anything we place above God in our life is an idol. Anything that gets our best, our best time, our best effort, energy, money, resources apart from God is an idol. And Paul urges us with this reality that in our daily lives, we are either sharing at the Lord's table or the table of demons and sin and idolatry. He's saying it's impossible to do both. We can't do both. It reminds me of sitting at the lunch table like in elementary school, you know, the tables that folded up like that, and they'd roll them away and then fold them back down. What was the worst seat at that table? It was the crack seat, right? Between the two benches, and you wanted to sit with your friends, so you'd sacrifice it, and you'd sit in that spot, and you're like, this was a mistake, because I can't sit at both tables. That's what Paul's saying here. He's like, you can't do both. He said, you can't do both, and here's why, and I love this. First, you can't do both, because our God is a jealous God, and he does not share his glory with anyone or anything. And secondly, and this is why Paul uses the Lord's Supper. I love this. He says, when we truly sit down and participate in the Lord's Supper at the table of the Lord and being satisfied and filled by the Lord and delighting in and loving and trusting the Lord and fellowshipping with the Lord, when this truly grips our heart, and aligns our gaze to Jesus, all attractions toward idols and demons and sin, it loses its attraction and power. And that's why we must continue to do the Lord's Supper, to realign our hearts, to realign our gaze. He's saying that's why it's been possible to partake in both. Because when our eyes are set on Jesus, our living hope, the unbelievably good news of Ephesians 2 <clears throat> that we were once dead in sin, children of wrath with no hope at all. God, being rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. When we reflect on that during the Lord's Supper, and we celebrate that, that's what realigns our hearts and our focus to Jesus. When we sit at the Lord's table and we cling to the cross. So what's this text instruct or command us to do like what's an application point very practical guy that we can take from this morning and pursue in our lives and walk with the lord well the first verse 14 tells us we flee from idolatry when it comes our way when temptation comes away we run an active instruction to go running from the idolatry or where do we run to where we run to the arms of our heavenly father we run to the news of the gospel we sit at the Lord's table. We rest in the forgiveness and peace that Jesus gives freely. Secondly, this text also reminds us that the Lord's Supper is a great privilege 
and a necessity in the spiritual health of a Christian, right? It allows the believer to rest in the glorious ramifications of the cross in our lives. It builds our hope. It strengthens us. It refocuses our eyes like we just talked about to Jesus. It unifies us. And then finally, this text reminds us that we must continually make an effort to sit at the Lord's table, to flee from idolatry, from the table of idolatry, the table of demons, the table of sins. And God has given us weapons to fight off the enemy, right? And we're to use them diligently, daily. He's given us instruction, right? He's given us his word, scripture, that we're to read, we're to memorize, we're to abide in. He's given us his ear through prayer, right? A direct line to talk to him, to praise his name, to thank him, to confess, to request. Then he's given the believer the Holy Spirit that dwells in us, that continually shapes us to be more like Christ, a sanctification process, becoming more like Christ as we get to know and love and trust him more and more. And these are really good blessings that we get to partake in. And it's a great privilege to be a part of God's family. And like I said before, we have the opportunity today together as a unified body of believers to sit at the Lord's table as we take the Lord's Supper together. And like we said before, the Lord's Supper is a time where we remember and we reflect on the faithfulness of God. And so if you have trusted in Christ and you proclaimed him as Lord, we would love for you to participate with us. If you didn't get one of like the cup juice things, the combo pack, they're in the back or on the sides. Go ahead and grab one now. But hear me right now, if you have never trusted in Christ, our prayer is that you would. Our prayer is that you would, even right now as we sit here, we're about to go into a time of personal reflection and personal prayer. If you want to talk to somebody about following the Lord, we have a care room in the back. I'd love for you to just get up while we do our prayer and go talk to one of our awesome volunteers in the care room. Because our hope is that you would see the freedom found in Jesus and proclaim him Savior and Lord over your life. So as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, we are reminded today that we needed a Savior, right? We needed one who would pay the penalty for our sins to reconcile us to God, and we look to the great unifier, we look to Jesus and the unity that we find in him through his body that was broken and his blood spilled for us. So let's take a few minutes individually in prayer, uh, thanking God for the good news of the gospel, reflecting on its implication in our lives, maybe confessing sins against him, praising him for who he is, and then I'll come back up and we'll continue in Lord's Supper. The bread that we eat in the, during the Lord's Supper is symbolic of Christ's body that was nailed to a tree, a sinless Savior in our place. And 
we can look to Mark's gospel and see how Jesus led the Lord's Supper, and he does it in this way. It says, as they were eating, he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. Let's go ahead and take and eat the bread. And the juice that we drink is symbolic of Christ's blood that was shed on the cross to wash us clean, free from sin. We continue in 23, he says, then he took a cup, Jesus took a cup after giving thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Go ahead and take and drink. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, this time where we can come and reflect on uh, the great news of the gospel um, and what that means for us in our lives. God, I pray that as we go out into the world, in the Tallahassee and beyond, and that we are faced to, uh, with the temptation to sit at the table of sin and idolatry, that we would flee from it, Lord. That this scripture that we talked about today would come into our mind, would resonate with us, and we would remember to flee from idolatry and to run into your arms. God, I pray that as we do that, that we would be an example to others and that your name would be made great and you would be glorified in that, God. I pray for Kids Camp coming up this week. God, thank you so much for bringing 300 plus kids into our doors. We pray that as we present them with the gospel, that we would plant seeds in their lives, that you would grow and there would be fruit from that. Uh, I pray for them. I pray for the many volunteers, uh, for um, energy and, and patience. Um, and just the right words to say when, when asked questions about what it looks like uh, to be a Christian, Lord. We love you and thank you. In your name I pray.